Buford on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, we're so glad that you can join us. For the next hour, we'll be taking questions that you may have concerning the Bible Uh, some doctrinal issues, some passage you're struggling with, or maybe you're just looking for biblical counsel in an area of your life. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us locally, 525-1859, or toll-free at 877-WAGP-980. People also email us. Tell us how they can email us, Rick. Indeed they can. They can email us at tbl at net. That's tbl, as in the Bible line. And we also do uh, take live calls. We've got one standing by right now, so let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. How can we help? Sir, I had a, uh, a meeting with one of the pastors here where I live in Texas, and he had an interesting take on uh, both the creation of uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and on the flood, and it revolved around a Hebrew term, Eretz. I believe it's E-R-E-T-S. Right. And his possession, position was that that cannot be translated into English and that it, it can only say, be an ambiguous word for land. Therefore, the creation story, it, you couldn't tell if it was speaking of a, a certain piece of God's land or the world. And when it came to the flood, you couldn't tell whether that was a global flood or a local flood because of that Hebrew word. And I was wondering what your take or position would be on that. Well, it's a good question. I appreciate you asking it. Let me first say that the Hebrew word Eretz, when you come to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as most of our listeners may know, uh, there was a time in human history when a, when a great number of the Jewish people, especially those who lived outside of the land of Israel, uh, lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so even in Acts 6, he mentions the Hellenistic Jews. Those are Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking Jews who lived outside of uh, Israel. And then you had the Hebraistic Jews who were Jewish uh, through the core. And so what that does for us is we have another translation of the Old Testament. And when you go to the Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture, it helps you to understand how the Hebrew mind would have understood different Hebrew words. And so they use, uh, for the Hebrew word Eretz, they use the word cosmos, which is typically translated in the New Testament as world. So they understood the term Eretz to be used in a global sense. But lay that aside, most of the time, so, so linguistically, I think you can affirm that that's what's in view. But um, most of the time, you can see just by reading a text of Scripture what is in view. And so for this idea of a localized flood, 
I think is really erroneous. It's, it's trying to um, fit the world's message and scheme uh, into, uh, you know, into Scripture. Because when you come to passages like in Peter's letters, he clearly, where you have New Testament commentary, uh, makes it clear that there was only eight people out of the planet who survived. Um, And so clearly there was a global type of flood. His view was, oh, there's not eight. There was only eight people in terms of, uh, you know, uh, in that geographic region that survived. But Peter's view was that there was eight people out of the world that survived. And that's how Moses understands it because of what follows genealogically, uh, where you have, you know, in Genesis six through nine, uh, Moses, his three sons, their three wives. And then uh, from that, in the table of nations that you have in Genesis 10 and 11, uh, you have the genealogies from th- the family of, uh, of Noah. And it's very interesting. I preached some sermons on Genesis 10 and 11. You can trace every major people group in the world to the table of nations that's found in Genesis 10 and 11. So one, not only do you have linguistically the argument that in the Greek translation, they understood the word Eretz to refer to the planet number, because they could have used a different word, a word that we get our word, a geography from to have translated Eretz, but they didn't. They used the word that was geographically encompassing the world. Number two, it's clear from the Genesis record, he comes into a new world. And, um, and, and two, it's clear from the New Testament commentary on it that there's eight people that survived the world. Uh, in addition, the genealogical record that follows uh, demonstrates that there was just three um, people groups, you know, three, three of his sons and daughters, plus Noah and his wife, you know, that all of the nations come out of their loins uh, from the genealogical record that God hath. And in addition, which, you know, is a whole other issue in, a, in, a, in and of itself, the scientific record would... Uh, appeal to a worldwide flood. How is it that we find lobsters frozen in rock in Colorado? How is it that we have fossilized sea remains uh, hundreds in thousands, uh, you know, thousands of miles away from the nearest ocean? Um, the fossil record would also point to a worldwide flood. So, I, you know, I, I don't buy it for a second. Um, there's a book called The Genesis Flood. That is a classic work. Uh, It was done by Henry Morris, who was a premier scientist of his day and respected in the secular communities at places like Harvard and Stanford and so forth. He wrote such a compelling argument showing the fossil record pointed to a worldwide flood. Uh, it's, it's not an easy read. It's a very technical read. But if you read it slowly and carefully, uh, it, it's just absolutely uh, wonderful because it affirms so closely what we read in, in the biblical record. Anyway, I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Are they, uh, uh, does that help a uh, listener? It did. Thank okay. you, Pastor. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Terrific. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And you can always email us at tbl at net, 
When you do call in, um, if there is a call already on the line, we'll take your name and number and call you back. And we're in the process of calling that person back that was uh, uh, calling us. And so... um, when people go on live, uh, they can, they, you know, some people call, they just want to dictate their question. We're happy to receive it that way. Some people, like our last caller from Texas, wanted to go on the air live. So we're happy to receive it just however you want to give it to us. Let's go to the next dictated question. We'll leave the caller on hold when they call through, and let's go to them. All right, very good. Um, some person who had uh, emailed their question would like to know, why do some people believe in purgatory? They want to know whether that is uh, scriptural. That's a good question. Purgatory is a Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, it's not a doctrine that you will find in Scripture. Now, Roman Catholics, to their defense, would come back and say, well, just because the word purgatory is not found in the Scripture does not mean that it's not a scriptural uh, doctrine. And, and that's a fair argument, but not true in reference to purgatory. Uh, you could say certainly the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed. While, while the word, word purgatory is not found in the Bible, neither is its doctrine. Um, there is an, some books that were written between the two Testaments, between the last uh, prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the coming of Christ. There's a 400-year period, and during that 400-year period, there were some historical writings that have never been considered by the Jews or by the early church to be Scripture. But one of those books is uh, Maccabees, and there are two books by Maccabees. It's in Second Maccabees, and if I remember, it's chapter 12 and verse 48. And there you have a, a, a verse from a book that God did not inspire, where you have people making atonement for dead people and praying for dead people. And so the doctrine of purgatory is certainly a consistent doctrine with Roman Catholicism because they do not have the same view of the atonement that evangelical Bible-believing Christians do because they have authority outside of the Bible through the popes uh, and they don't embrace sola scriptor or scripture alone as the final authority. So in Roman Catholicism, Jesus didn't completely pay for your sin debt. And salvation is a cooperative effort as the Council of Trent affirmed, the Council of Trent that met from 1542 to 1568 in response to Luther's 95 Theses, they met many times over a number of years, and they produced a document called the Council of Trent, which was reaffirmed, by the way, at Vatican I and Vatican II as still binding on the Church. And if you read, I think it's Canon 12, out of the Council of Trent, they teach that uh, justification is not by grace alone through faith alone, but that good deeds indeed help um, a person getting into heaven. And that, of course, is contradictory to the Bible. So their view of the atonement is not that Jesus paid in full. He, he basically made a down payment, and then we make the installments through the works that we do. When on the cross he said to tell us die, it's paid in full, it's finished. All of the demands that God had against us have been satisfied and finished through the cross. So if you teach a works righteousness and you die with some unconfessed sin in your soul, then the function of purgatory is to basically uh, cleanse you of that sin through the fires of purgatory. They use verses in the New Testament out of context to try to bolster up what they teach from Second Maccabees, which, of course, they view as inspired. We don't. And the reason we don't is because, number one, the intertestament books are never quoted 
uh, by the apostles or Jesus Christ as being inspired. They only quote from between Genesis and Malachi. So number one, the apostles and Christ never saw them as inspired. And two, there are certain marks of inspiration, which I go through uh, in my course on bibliology. And one of the uh, one of the sections of the course is how did we get our canon of scripture? Why do we acknowledge just 66 books as being inspired and not 78 as in the Roman Catholic Bible? So there are some evidences for inspiration that helped the church to recognize what God wrote and what he didn't. But they use some verses like 1 Corinthians 3, where it talks about works being gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, and each man's works will be tested by fire. It's the works that are being burned. It's not the people. So the doctrine of purgatory is a faulty doctrine. It's not a biblical doctrine. Uh, It is outside the bounds of scripture, uh, and it should not be embraced by true Bible-believing Christians. All right, very good. We've got a live caller standing by. If you have a question on today's Bible line, by all means, give us a call at 525-1859. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Hey, guys. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, Pastor, I had a question for you. In years past, I've heard you discuss the the process that you and Mrs. Brogy have used uh, when you're making important decisions. And uh, I wonder if you can discuss discuss what that is. I don't want to, we're facing some important decisions and I don't want to mess them up again. Well, I appreciate that question, the spirit of the question, because it tells me you want to do the will of God. And certainly, uh, whenever we have made a major decision in our family, uh, we've done it with much prayer. In fact, one of the things that my wife and I have often done is uh, we we take kind of a a planning uh, getaway where we, we pray and we seek the Lord over different issues. And we'll often make just a, a list of different things that we want to pray about, different areas of our life. They might be um, financial goals. They might be family goals. They might be ministry goals. And, and we break them down in very specific. You know, I often tell people, don't forget the anacronym GASP when you pray. God answers specific prayer. You pray generally, you get a general answer. You pray specifically, you get a specific answer. And sometimes when we're seeking God, we're not always certain what his will is. You know, we know the general parameters of God's will, but we may not know specifically what he wants us to do. Um, You know, well, um, God maybe has put it in your heart to go to seminary, to go to the ministry. Well, what seminary does he want you to go to? Uh, does he want you to go to one in Texas or one in Washington State or one in, you know, Mississippi or one in Kentucky? Well, you know, you have to seek God and can God unfold his specific will for your life? And the answer is yes. Uh, I'm coming up in our series in Romans. We're still several weeks away because we're working through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we just completed chapter 10. But when we get to chapter 12, uh, the first three verses, I'll do a sermon on really finding God's will for your life. And I do have a sermon, too, uh, from, (coughs) excuse me, Acts chapter 2, on how to find the will of God for your life. Um, Because there you have a a viable illustration of uh, how the apostles discovered God's will. And uh, there are some timeless principles there that apply even today. But I would just say this as a general rule. My wife and I have never made a major decision in our life, in our family, without much prayer and very often without prayer and fasting. 
Uh, we've sought the Lord. And when you seek God in that way, there's an earnestness in fasting uh, that prayer um, uh, that, that brings to the surface um, a different kind of prayer. When, when you fast, and Jesus assumed God's people would fast. Uh, he said, when you fast, here's how you do it. He didn't say if you fast. He assumed we would fast. Now, I suppose in the technical sense, we fast every night, right? We call it breakfast. Breakfast uh, Between dinner and the next morning, we fasted. We've been without food. We don't eat during the night. Well, that's really what a fast is. It's, it's an absence of food. And when there's no food in your stomach, there's more blood in your mind, in your head. You know, when you eat a big meal, you get sleepy. Why? Because more blood goes to the center of your body and is used to help uh, digest the food, and you don't have quite as much in the mind, and you feel sleepy as a result. Well, when you fast, your, your, your mental acuity is sharpened, and your ability to uh, sense the Lord's proddings to pray are, are magnified. And so even when you feel a hunger pain, it's a reminder to commit to the Lord your way. You know, in all your ways, acknowledge him. He doesn't say don't use, but don't lean on your own understanding. And so you're not leaning on your own understanding when you're taking an issue to God in prayer and in fasting. And two, even the time it takes to eat a meal uh, or to go to a restaurant or to clean up from a meal, uh, that time can be sought in your prayer closet or that place where you and God can be all alone and you seek the Lord. So, um, again, prayer is the most important thing and it's done in the midst of a clean life. Uh, but it's, it's much like this radio station, you know, when you are close to the signal, uh, WAGP 88.7 is well heard, but the further you get out from the signal, it begins to get oh a little scratchy, and then after a while you can't make out what's being said, and you just turn the station altogether. Well, finding God's will is much like that when you are close to the signal, and you're walking intimately with the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, and seeking Him earnestly. God doesn't want to hide His will. He wants to reveal His will. He wants to unfold it to you. He may not all unfold it all at once. Sometimes it's like driving down the highway at night, and you can't see a mile down the road, but you don't need to. All you need to see is 100 yards. And when you go those 100 yards, you can see the next 100 yards. And very often, God will unfold his will as you in obedience take the next step. And you know, well, what's the next thing I know I'm supposed to do? And you act on that, and God will unfold it as you walk in obedience and in faith. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. We have another caller standing by in Bluffton. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, on several occasions, I've heard Jack Van Impey speak about how he sent out uh, 2,000 copies of his uh, one of his messages on uh, um, Islam and the dangers of Islam and then permeating this country and trying to indoctrinate Sharia law. And he said that, you know, his only requirement was that the, if the pastors would preach on it, that he wouldn't charge them, but they had too many jelly, jellyfish uh, preachers out there that won't preach on it. And this morning I listened to SRN News, and they talked about, you know, the percentage of pastors who would... Uh, uh, to, you know, preach on domestic violence uh, and those who wouldn't. 
Uh, my question to you is, is, what do you think the role is of pastors to preach on subjects like that? Or do you think that, like Billy Graham, when he you know, found out he was getting too caught up in the politics and the different presidents, that he had to come back to preaching the gospel? So I'm wondering, what do you think uh, the role is of pastors? Well, you know, God tells us to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. And so when the Apostle Paul gathered the Ephesian elders together in Acts, the 20th chapter, you see his preaching really goes in two directions. It goes to the people of God. Uh, He preached repentance uh, in faith towards God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's his evangelistic message. There's Paul, you know, telling lost people how they can get right with God. And so, uh, and so he can say, I can testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Uh, but then he goes on and he makes it very, very clear that he preached the whole counsel of Scripture. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. And then he uh, goes on and he uses the phraseology that he preached the whole counsel of Scripture. And so that's what we're called to do as pastors. Um, He warned them, even um, in this sermon that he gives in Acts, the 20th chapter of savage wolves that would come in and try to draw away the sheep. So sometimes you have to identify the wolves and what they look like. And so, you know, a pastor shouldn't be afraid to say that the Quran is not inspired by God any more than the Book of Mormon. It's just not. And to uh, not warn his people or not to help his people to understand, say, the uniqueness of Scripture is to do them a disservice, especially in the day in which we live. Uh, so, listen, if you, if you preach the whole counsel of Scripture, you're going to deal with issues of sin. You're, you're going to preach against abortion. You're not going to try to, you know, tickle people's ears. You're going to preach against homosexuality. You're going to preach about the roles that a husband is to take as a loving leader. And you're going to preach against um, issues that may go against the culture. uh, But that doesn't matter. You're called to preach the truth. You're called not to tickle ears and to please men, but to preach the word of God. And one way that ensures a pastor doing this is to preach systematically through the Bible and to preach expositionally through whole books of the Bible. Because then when you do that, you know, if if a pastor preaches only topically, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with a topical sermon, especially when it's an expositional topical sermon where, where God burdens your heart to preach on a particular issue, but you take a text of scripture and you, and you preach (laughs) through it expositionally verse by verse, then you're going to get the gut of its meaning. But if you only preach topically and not through books of the Bible, then you will tend to preach on, uh, on issues that maybe you enjoy preaching on or that you have a burden for, and you end up excluding other things that the people of God need to hear, and you're not giving them a balanced diet. So, yeah, you know, um, th- there's a lot of weak preaching in our day um, because pastors have thought, well, if we need to win the world, we don't want to turn the world off. And they're actually taking the wrong approach. The, the truth of the matter is when, when you actually preach the Bible, you're going to turn some people off. And that's how you win them to Christ. Paul says that the law is a uh, tutor. It's a school teacher to lead us to faith in Christ. So when you hold up God's moral righteous standards 
people are brought under the conviction of sin and they see their true and genuine need for a savior. So we have the seeker sensitive movement that has been prevalent now for almost three decades in America. And so, you know, about three decades ago, you saw church signs going up, traditional worship service, and then the contemporary service. What they meant by that is, well, here's the old style service, and here's the new style where, you know, the, the music's different, the preaching is different. That, that's sheer nonsense. Um, and so, you know, we hear all these statistics that, you know, 80% of young people, by the time they get to college, walk away from the faith. Why is that? Because they're not converted. That's why they're just, they've never been saved. Why aren't they being saved? Why aren't we reaching the next generation? Well, a couple of things. We're not preaching the truth. We're not preaching the whole counsel of scripture. And two, in, in not preaching it, a lot of parents are not watching over and guarding their own hearts. And so the parents are weakened spiritually, who are, of course, the key influencers in the lives of their children. So anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And we had a dictated question. Our caller says she is a single divorced mom, not her choice, with one small child. Her husband is remarried and is not in communication with her or her child. How should the church view her as a divorced woman? And what does scripture say about her eventually remarrying? Well, it's an issue you're going to have to work through on your own in terms of, you know, whether or not you have freedom to remarry. But let me answer the first question initially. Um, Divorced people should be welcomed in the church. Uh, Approximately, the numbers may vary, but it's around 50 percent. Fifty percent of the people who say I do within a, a matter of years will say I don't. They will break off the marriage covenant that they made to each other before God. And again, there are very often people who are divorced against their own will. And especially in our day, because one, even in the church, we live in an era of weak churches where many of God's people are not being built up in the faith. And so they have weak homes and they have weak marriages. The function of the church is to build up the home so that the parents in turn can Uh, be strong in their faith and disciple the offspring that God will entrust to them. But if the church is weak, then the family typically will follow as being very weak. Um, In addition, there are scores of biblical principles that are being um, violated, and the church is encouraging many of these principles. The last caller said, well, you know, there are some hard issues that pastors don't preach about. Well, I'll give you an example for a pastor to stand up in the pulpit and to say that God's ideal for a married couple, I didn't say for a single woman, but for a married couple is that the the wife be a worker at home. That kind of uh, teaching doesn't fly in our day. Oh, well, that's going to turn off all the working women uh, who work outside of the home. Well, listen, God God is a lot wiser than we are. And when God says to a married family that the husband should be the provider and the wife, though she can certainly earn money from her home and through other creative things she does, but without sacrificing her family. But when she goes off and she's gone eight to 10 hours a day working, she can't influence her children the way they need to be built into. It's a full-time job. We've had a We've been blessed the last 10 days to have four of our grandkids with us, and 
you know, I'm just reminded afresh, it's a, it's a full-time job. You know, it, what these moms do is a, is a powerful thing. Uh, they talk to the kids during the day. The kids ask questions. And for the dad and the mom to be on the top of the pile and to be able to minister and build in their lives is huge. But when the mom's off working all day, And then she comes home and because God's created in her a nurturing dimension and she's still going to want to cook the meal a certain way and keep the house a certain way. And after a while, a couple begins to function out of exhaustion. And when they're exhausted, you know, they they, they begin to get on each other's nerves and and walls build up And, and they're doing something that God didn't design them to do. It's like God didn't design you to work seven days a week. You can do it and you can do it for a time, but sooner or later, your body, your home is going to pay a price if you don't take one in seven days to rest. And if you violate God's principles, then your marriage is going to suffer. And so I don't even know the genesis of this particular phone caller as to why she was divorced. And she said, of course, it was her husband's initiative. Probably he found another woman. And again, here's a day, even amongst Christians, they don't watch over their own hearts. They feed on filth night after night on the television and movies they download. And and before you know it, as a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. And they you know, are not faithful to their spouse. And all of a sudden, they don't love their wife anymore. Or they need time to think meaning they found someone else that they're infatuated with. That's all it means in our day. Uh, you know, it used to be the number one cause of divorce was financial. Today, the number one cause of divorce is another person. That's the number one cause. When people say, well, I'm thinking about getting divorced, I want to say, well, what's his name? What's her name? Uh, there's someone else. There's a third party that has entered into the relationship uh, 99% of the time in our day. So with all that said, um, the church should welcome you. Listen, with about 50% of the population ending up in broken marriages, we need to reach, we need to reach divorced people. They need to know that they're welcomed and loved and that God can forgive them. And what God has called clean, let no man call unclean. Uh, There are consequences to any sin. Uh, that you cannot erase. Uh, And so a divorced mom now takes the role of the breadwinner. And the church should do all that they can to encourage her. Uh, You know, we have have a single mother ministry in our church and a support group, and the ladies get together, and, and we've provided counseling. We've done car clinics where they bring their cars, and some of the men on our church have, you know, worked on their cars and fixed them. They've bought the parts, and they've uh, done the most expensive thing, provided the labor, and there needs to be a ministry. When we have like father-son campouts, we have single moms who, you know, have young sons growing up, and we want to expose those young men to some good male models, and so we attach that single mom's boy to another dad and uh, his son that are going on the trip, and um, so those are important things, so that the young man is not feminized uh, by having solely a mother as the primary influencer in his life. So there's a lot the church should do. You're going to have to ask and answer the issue of uh, divorce and remarriage. Um, If you want to know my view, go online, um, listen to the message I preached on Matthew chapter 19 on marriage and divorce and what does Jesus say. 
So I think that would be helpful. Or even in this Romans series in Romans 7, 1 to 4, uh, because Paul uses divorce and remarriage as an illustration, I dealt with the issue there as well. Okay. All right, the, the calls are stacking up, so let's go to the next call. I hope that will at least encourage the uh, caller to, to take a, advantage of some of the resources. And that uh, online location that uh, we were talking about was uh, searchthescriptures.org. That's where you'll find that. We have David on line one. Let's go to him now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Oh, he just hung up. We lost David. All right. Well, All let's right. go. Uh, line three, another line's just open. Let's go there. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Yes. Thanks for calling. How can I help? I have a soul winning question. I was um, sharing the Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend tract with someone the other day, and uh, his main objection because he had really, uh, I guess, visited a lot of different churches and uh, heard about a lot of different theologies in depth. It seemed like his main issue, he he said he didn't know if he was predestined. So do you have any advice on how to respond to someone if they say that? Well, this is what I would say to him. I would I would appeal to some of the general passages of the Bible that speak of God's heart towards lost people. And so I would take him to a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, um, verse 4, it says, um, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, uh, the kind of prayer that we should be making so that we have freedom to preach the gospel, who desires, verse 4, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, Jesus said in John 19 and verse 10, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Do you know anyone who's not lost? Well, the Bible says we're born lost. It says by nature we're children of wrath. And yet Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, not just a certain group of people, but the lost. The Bible says Christ died for sinners. Uh, You know anyone who's not sinful? Uh, I don't. Uh, That includes all men. Christ shed his blood for all people because he desires all people to come uh, to a knowledge of the truth. Um, In... Second Peter chapter three and verse nine, it says, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So I would say to him, listen, God's heart is for you to be saved. And God certainly knows who will be saved. And if God didn't know that, then God would not be God. God is all knowing. So God in eternity past could look down the corridors of time and see how people would respond to his wooing work to try to win them and convince them to himself. And so I would say to that individual, if you die and go to hell, it will not be God's fault. It will be your fault because God's heart is for you to be saved. And if you are not saved, the only reason you will not be saved is because you chose not to be saved, because you chose to reject God's simple plan of salvation. So if you want to be one of the predestined, one of the elect, then you can. And again, the word predestined, I know, is used very loosely in our day, but you might, if it would be helpful to you, listen to my message at the end of Romans 8, where I make the distinction as even the reformers did, but we don't in our day between 
election and predestination. The word predestination is actually a word that doesn't apply to the loss. It's a word that applies to the saved. That once we are saved, God has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. The word election speaks of God's choice. And who are the elect, the elect or the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever won'ts. And so if he dies and goes to hell, he won't be able to blame God. The only one he'll be able to blame is himself. So that's where I would start with him. And I think it might be helpful for you to listen to my sermon, uh, the two sermons I preach, the last two sermons I preach in Romans 8, where I deal with the subject of foreknowledge, predestination, and election. And it will, I think, crisp the terms in your own mind so you can respond intelligently. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Now we've got David on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yes. First, Pastor Brokey, I want to thank you for bringing such an artist as Steve Green to our church and say what a privilege it was to be on on the altar with him and, and to be able to sing with him. So I thank you and, and everyone at Community Bible for making that happen. Well, we're glad he could come. Um, my question is this. Being in Pastor Matt's discovery class a few years ago, uh, you know, he taught us, and, and I'm sure it came from you and, and probably him too, to you know, read the Psalms and the, and the Proverbs every day. And in doing so, it struck me this morning, reading Psalm 22, how prophetic King David was in, in speaking about what was the future crucifixion of Jesus. Yes. And it, it, it just it amazed me at, at how, how prophetic that was. And I, I didn't realize that, that King David was a prophet, in fact. He's called a prophet in Scripture. The term is actually applied to him, yeah. But it just... It, Basically, I just I just wanted to you know, get your views on on Psalm 22 and and, and I preached know, a whole sermon on things it. I might have missed. Yeah, I preached a whole sermon on it. Went through every single verse a few years back. So I would encourage you to maybe listen to that. It's an amazing psalm. Uh, it's absolutely mind blowing. And again, it's one of uh, the divine proofs given within Scripture itself to show the unique inspiration of the Bible. The the only book ever written in all of human history that has specific um, prophecy predictions made hundreds of years in advance that were actually literally fulfilled is the Bible. There is no prophecy in the Quran, zero. There's no prophecy in the Book of Mormon, zero. Uh, there's no prophecy in the Upanishads, none. In the Veda, zero. Only. Only the Bible has fulfilled prophecy because only God knows the future and can foretell it hundreds of years in advance. So um, I went through uh, about 15 prophecies in Psalm 22 uh, in a sermon I preached on it that I think would be be helpful to you. Appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Okay, and of course you can listen to that Psalm 22 message at searchthescriptures.org. And if you uh, ever would like to listen to a repeat of the Bible line, you can do so at wagp.net. Listener Neil from San Antonio, Texas writes, I think you commented that John Hagee preaches the gospel. I happen to live at one time within walking distance of his megachurch but never visited it for the following reason. It is public knowledge per the San Antonio Express News that John Hagee divorced his wife many years ago earlier in his ministry career and then married his secretary. Wouldn't this make him a false preacher? Maybe you weren't aware of this adultery situation. 
it wouldn't make him a false preacher. It would just make him an unqualified pastor because a pastor must be a one-woman man. So John Hagee, you know, has the gospel. So people have asked me, is he a false prophet? No, he's not a false prophet. He has the death, burial, and resurrection, and he preaches it. Now, Paul, when he looks at the people that in one city that he ministered in, the city in Philippi, he says, um, he, of course, is under house arrest when he writes that. And he says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, they're saying if Paul can preach in prison uh, and be bold to preach to every guard that's chained to him, what's my excuse? Um, And so Paul's faith encourages them. Paul writes to Romans, he says, I hope we'll be encouraged by each other's faith. Well, the Philippians certainly were by his faith. Some, he says, in the preaching of the gospel, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, Christ is proclaimed, and in this we rejoice and I will rejoice. So I don't necessarily endorse the man's ministry, never have, but I endorse his preaching of the gospel. And could could Carl Brogy do what John Hagee did? <laughs> Anybody could. You could. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation um, will provide the way of escape. So if you think, well, that could never happen to me. I could never be unfaithful to my wife. I could never commit adultery. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. So, no, I don't think he's qualified to be a pastor because he violates the one-woman-man qualification that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, but it doesn't disqualify him to preach the gospel. Every Christian who's born again should preach the gospel, and he does, and for that, I am grateful. Let's go to the next question. All righty. A listener has heard about a new Christian-based yoga class that's starting up in the area. The instructor will be using scripture for meditation instead of chants, etc. What do you think about this? Is it okay to transform a traditionally pagan-based practice into a faith-based one? Um, I don't like it. I don't like it. I think the Bible says abstain from every appearance of evil. And so even to say, well, I'm going to a yoga class, an unbeliever might not understand your rationale. You may not be like someone in a typical yoga class trying to empty your mind. That's the Eastern forms of meditation. It's an emptying of the mind, where when the Bible speaks of biblical meditation, meditating on his word day and night, it's filling the mind with truth. So I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be above reproach. We don't want our testimony to be questioned, brought into, uh, you know, some false pretense that people might lay against us. And so I I think wisdom would dictate don't do it. Uh, That's my view on it. You asked me, so I told you. Let's go to the next one. All righty. Our next uh, listener dictated their question. Uh, Can you tell me your thoughts on the partnership of Beth Moore with Priscilla Shirer? She's the daughter of Tony Evans. The whole thing is confusing to me. I have heard warnings as far as Beth Moore is concerned, but not Priscilla Shire. And I know Shire's upbringing was biblical and solid. 
Is a Bible study done by both of them safe? Well, persons, let me let me just answer it generally first. A person's upbringing, um, if someone's brought up in a solid home, doesn't necessarily automatically translate to the fact that that person is solid. Francis Schaeffer was probably the leading spokesman for evangelical Christianity in the 1970s, dealing with the social moral issues of the day. He's now dead. He's in heaven. He started a fellowship called the Brief Fellowship and Christian missionaries and pastors and lay people from all over the world would go to Switzerland there and they would study and, and many were converted and won to Christ and many were built up in Christian apologetics. But his son, Frankie, is now really an apostate of the faith. His, Frankie Schaefer used to speak at the Southern Baptist Convention, used to have fire, it seemed, in his bosom to preach Christ, and now he rejects Christ, and he's totally apostate. And, of course, uh, he was brought under discipline several months ago because uh, he performed a marriage for his homosexual son. And um, the United Methodist Church initially defrocked him, and then yesterday they reinstated him. Um, So, you know, again, someone growing up in a home uh, does not guarantee that just because their daddy's theology is sound means the son or the daughter's theology is sound as well. Lay that aside. Uh, You're bringing Beth Moore and uh, Priscilla Shriver together. Uh, Obviously, I'm not a Beth Moore fan because of some of the positions that she has taken, especially with the roles of men and women in the church. And to me, she's blurred um, what the Bible teaches. There was a time when Kay Arthur did not do that, but she has in our day where she will preach to mixed audiences. And their rationale is, well, you know, the pastor of this church has given me permission to preach to this audience, and I'm under my pastor's authority. Listen, no pastor can give a woman authority that God expressly forbids. And God says a man... A woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And so a woman is not to teach and preach the word of God in a mixed audience to adult men and women. God's word is very clear on that. And it's not some time-bound principle. It's a, it's a timeless principle because when Paul argues it, he goes back to the order of creation, uh, to the unfolding of the fall, and then to the higher call that God has placed on women. Um, Priscilla Shriver, you know, I'm, uh, I know she's Tony's Evans, Evans daughter and, and he's got another daughter who I greatly admire, who's a worker at home and she doesn't travel the country and she's there with her kids. And I think she's doing a fantastic job. And, you know, Priscilla, she's gotten into some areas that are a little bit questionable. You know, she was there in be still and know that I am God conference where they did with Beth Moore, some contemplative, uh, prayer which uh, that's a whole other question in itself, but uh, it's an unbiblical form of prayer where you listen to God for God to speak, kind of the Sarah Young approach where you write down what God is showing you. And these are the kinds of messages that, um, that Beth Moore will get, you know, where she speaks in the first time, well, God said this, God said that. And, and Priscilla's done the same thing. And I think that's dangerous. I, it may seem really spiritual to a lot of women and like this is the end thing to do, but you shouldn't do that. Um, you, you, you know, it's a, it's a violation of scripture. So uh, I'm not really excited about uh, some of those steps that have been taken. Rick, I, the questions have just piled up. Let's see if we can knock off some more. Indeed. Um, the next caller writes, what does God expect in the area of forgiveness, even when it involves 
the murder of someone close to you. How soon does God expect it to happen, and what advice would you give to the new believer who might be struggling with this? Well, you know, if someone has taken the life of someone that you love, um, that that's a tough thing to deal with. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's neither is it an impossible uh, goal to complete. Uh, God tells us that we're to forgive people, that we're to love even our enemy. And so the only way to do that sometimes is to step back and to remember what God has forgiven you of and to remember, too, what you are capable capable of. You know, a Christian is capable of murder. A Christian can, in a fit of rage and outbursts of anger, which is a mark of the flesh, do things that they would forever regret. And it's happened. And there are Christians in prison today. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter says in his, um, first Peter two, his first epistle, don't let any of you, meaning you Christians suffer as an evildoer. Uh, and he reminds us of the authority that God has given government, even over the church in terms of their ability to execute, um, punishment on those who do what's wrong. But nonetheless, we need to step back sometimes and remember what God has forgiven us of in Ephesians four. It tells us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So the basis by which we forgive someone else who's hurt us as deeply with the murder of a loved one is to forgive just like God in Christ has forgiven you. You know, sometimes Christians will say, well, forgive and forget. That's not in the Bible. God never says forgive and forget. Uh, if someone murders your loved one, you'll never forget that. If someone breaks into your home and, you know, and abuses one of your, you, you abuses your spouse, you'll never forget that. Uh, but the way you remember it can be different. If you remember it with a deep sense of bitterness and resentment, then you really haven't released the person. So Jesus tells a parable that is worth meditating on sometimes uh, to help us when we're struggling with the forgiveness that we need to exercise towards another person. And the parable is precipitated by a question that Peter asks, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up till seven times? And Jesus said, no, up to 70 times seven. And then he tells that great parable of, you know, a certain king who who has a, a servant who owes him $20 million and he says, pay up. And the, and the servant begs for, you know, for release from the dead. And, and the king feels compassion and he lets him go and he releases him from the dead. And, and then you have this other gentleman who, wow, he, um, he goes home and he finds his servant who owes him a hundred dollars and he says, pay up. And, He begs in the same way, but he shows no compassion. Well, the point of the parable there in in Matthew 18 is that if we are truly saved, a mark of conversion, among other things, is that we will forgive. We will forgive. Um, And so, you know, you have to ask God to help you sometimes. Is it possible for a Christian not to forgive? Yes, because in the Lord's prayer or the model prayer, whatever you want to call it, we are taught to, you know, in, in prayer to forgive as God has forgiven us. So it's possible to withhold forgiveness. And that's why Paul commands it in Ephesians 4.32. So there's kind of a, a, a double-edged sword here. On the one hand, it's a mark of conversion that you will forgive people. And if you are a person that's characterized by unforgiveness, and you probably have pretty much proof positive you, that you've never really been truly born again, 
But on the other edge of the sword, we are reminded that it's possible for a Christian not to forgive. And when we aren't forgiving, we're out of fellowship with God because our heart needs to be clear, not only vertically, but horizontally as well. And so we need to ask God to to help us through that whole process. All right. Very good. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, And our next listener would like to know, what do you think of the um, Summit Ministries? Uh, This is Life Action Ministries Revival Summits, rather. Life Action Ministries Revival Summits. Well, Life Action Ministries is a good work. They've been around for about, I think, 30 or 40 years now. And uh, their whole focus is, uh, you know, calling the church to revival. We, we play someone, at, I think, at 1230, Nancy Lee DeMoss, and she is being underwritten by Life Action Ministries, which is a ministry that is, again, focusing on revival, her ministry, of course, towards, towards women. Nonetheless, um, it, it's a good organization. Whether you can, you know, master a revival at a summit meeting uh, is um, certainly debatable. Um, in the truest sense, God brings revival. And, and I know we can get very technical here because you can, you know, scrutinize the word revival is, you know, in contradistinction to the word awakening. Traditionally, the word awakening was used in reference to unbelievers finding Christ and revival was a term that was used to God's people getting right. And certainly it's not until God's people get right that awakening typically happens because when God's people get right and their hearts are clean and they're walking in purity, then they're seeking the Lord God for an awakening of the country. And that's really what we need. Let judgment begin with the household of faith. It needs to begin with God's people getting their hearts right. And of course, one of the characteristics of the church at the end of the age is that the church will be lukewarm and will be cold. Most people's love will grow cold. And because of cold hearts, people will be out of fellowship and won't be really seeking uh, the salvation of lost people. But that is our only hope in America. But listen, if we can't have a revival in America, let's at least have one here in South Carolina. And if we can't have a revival in South Carolina, well, I hope we'll have one here at Community Bible Church. And if we can't have one in Community Bible Church, maybe you could have a revival in your home. And if you can't have a revival in your home, well, maybe you could have one in your heart. Because that's really where it starts. It starts with the individual. It starts with the person getting right before the living God, where they are willing to walk in holiness and purity separate from the world, and therefore desiring to have an impact towards the world. That's what we talked about on Sunday, how to, that tension between being a friend of sinners like Jesus was and yet remaining unstained by the world as Jude speaks of there in his short little epistle. Well, we're out of time today. There's a lot of questions we didn't get to, but we appreciate those who have called in and dictated their questions. And God willing, there's always another Tuesday if we're here next week and the Lord doesn't take us home to be with him. We hope to be here and taking your questions. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. If you don't have a church home and you're new to the area, go to cbcofbuford.org or communitybiblechurch.us and you can find out more about our church that meets in both Bluffton, Hilton Head and here in Buford as well. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.